this year, as I just mentioned, uh, the nation is celebrating the first year of the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. And in particular, in 2011, we'll be focusing on the year 1861. But uh, the dramatic events of that year could not have happened the way they did without the presidential election of 1860 the previous year. In his latest book, Year of Meteors, our speaker recreates the tumultuous presidential election year of 1860, which upset every conventional expectation and split the American political system beyond repair. That's the great tragedy, is that the American political system failed and led to the result to arms. At the beginning of the year, Senator Stephen A. Douglas, leader of the Democrats, which was the only party with a large following in both the North and the South, Douglas seemed poised to win. Everybody expected that. But by fall, the Democratic Party had disintegrated and it enabled um, the upstart Republicans, a young party, to put up an untried but canny dark horse candidate uh, in the White House. Year of Meteors tells the story of Abraham Lincoln's rise to power and the series of events that led to, his, to secession and ultimately civil war. It's a great pleasure, a personal pleasure for me to invite uh, an old friend back to the VHS, Douglas Edgerton. Um, Doug ha has come here to do research on several topics and he's a man of, of many talents and wide ranging subject matter in the books he's published. He's a professor of history at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York, and uh, he's, he's a real trooper. He got up at 4 o'clock this morning to catch a plane to New York, uh, to, to Washington, and then drive down here. So we're very grateful, and I'm personally very grateful to, to Doug and very grateful to uh, I-95 that there weren't any traffic jams. <laughs> Doug is the author, as I said, of several books, including He Shall Go Out Free, the Lives of Denmark Vesey, Gabriel's Rebellion, The Virginia Slave Conspiracies of 1800 and 1802, and Death or Liberty, African Americans and Revolutionary America. I'm happy to say as well that one of Doug's early articles appeared in our own journal, The Virginia Magazine of History and Biography. So please welcome Douglas Edgerton, who will speak to us on the Year of Meteors, Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln, and the election that brought on the Civil War. Well, thank you, and thank you for all turning out. Let me apologize in advance for my voice. It was snowing when I left Syracuse this morning, and every time, then it was raining all the way down on 95, so every time that happens, my voice kind of comes and goes, so I've got my water, my voice vanishes. Um, bear with me. Um, it's great to be back at uh, the Virginia Historical Society, as Nelson uh, mentioned. Uh, my first article, 26 years ago, uh, was published in the Virginia Magazine, and, uh, and I still recall with great clarity, I was a graduate student getting the letter from Nelson saying they were publishing the article, and that was still a very big day in my life, so it's really quite amazing to be back here and talking about my, uh, my newest book. Um, I'll talk for about 45 minutes and then take questions that any of you might have. Um, the book obviously is called Year of Meteors. Uh, here is the unfinished capital in the spring of 1861 as Lincoln is being sworn in. Uh, I stole, of course, the title from a poem by Walt Whitman. There really were meteor showers in 1859 and 1860, uh, but of course the meteors he was talking about were, were the American leaders. Uh, he, he mentions the upcoming election, uh, which he viewed with great trepidation in his poem. Uh, the poem was dedicated to John Brown, uh, but, but he sort of looked ahead and like all Americans wondered what was going to happen after the election. So I want to do um, four quick things here and then again have time for questions. Uh, the first is to explain how the book came to be written um, because believe it or not when I uh, talked to my, my editor about the book I didn't realize this was going to be the sesquicentennial. I just wanted to write the book. Luckily the publisher did and got it out in time. Um, which shows you how, how, how you know, dense historians can be. Um, second, run through a brief overview of the election, there were four major candidates and one minor candidate, uh, so it still is one of the most complicated elections in American history. Third, uh, talk about how the election is oddly familiar. Uh, I was writing the book during the 2008 election season, and quite often I felt like I was just writing about current events. 
And finally, what made the election unique? Obviously, it's the one election in American history that led to a civil war. Um, but certainly, what kind of lessons uh, this election holds for the present? Um, so first, um, how it came into being. Um, I've always written about race in early America. I was raised in Arizona. And when I was young, um, my uh, maternal uh, grandmother lived with us in the house. Um, she was born in Nashville in 1885. And she was sweet and genteel and educated and elegant. And when I was in college, Roots was on television for the first time. And she watched most of the first episode and, um, and then went and, and lay down and put a cold compress on her forehead. That was, that was her way of dealing with things. Also, when Nixon would come on television, she'd denounce him as a black Republican and go lie down. And, and uh, so um, the next day, she, she took me aside and she said, you know, I, I want you to understand, this was all lies. Uh, we were good to our people. So I thought, OK, this is what I want to write about. So I, I came east. And um, I've been writing about the intersections of race and public policy ever since. And so writing about the election that was the most about race before 2008 just seemed to make the most sense. Um, believe it or not, I mean, of course, you know, 2009 was also the Lincoln bicentennial. And there was just this tidal wave of, of new books on Lincoln, a new book on Mary Lincoln uh, by Catherine Clinton, which is quite wonderful. Books on Lincoln and his admirals, Lincoln and his generals. Um, but in many ways, uh, because this is not really Lincoln's story. He's not supposed to win this election. Um, uh, there were not a lot of things about Lincoln in this election. And in fact, the last book about 1860 in the election was 1947 uh, by a historian named Reinhard Luthen. So this was the, the first book in, in more than half a decade just about the election. A brief overview of the election. Again, there were four major candidates. The first ticket to actually meet successfully in their convention and get their ticket into the field is one that none of my students have ever heard about today, uh, in part because, here it is, a short-lived, really kind of a one-time-only party, now it is the Constitutional Union Party. Their plan was to hold the country together by standing for the Constitution and the Union, which is to say they hoped to hold the country together by taking no formal position on really the only issue that mattered to Americans in 1860, the question of slavery and the territories. Uh, they even refused to issue a platform. Um, parties today still issue platforms. If you want to know what the Republican platform is in 2008, go online. There it is. It's the size of the phone book. Um, but in the 19th century, platforms really meant something. Uh, you go into a tavern in, in Richmond, and there would be somebody with a tankard of ale in one hand and, and the platform in the other. They're about eight, ten pages in pamphlet form. So, so the platforms really matter in the 19th century. And so for this party not to issue a platform, tells you a lot. They're trying to kind of hold the country together basically by not talking about important issues. <laughs> <clears throat> they nominated a sexually balanced ticket of John Bell, here he is on the left, a uh, Tennessee senator, and Ever Edward Everett of Massachusetts on the right. He, of course, was the great celebrated orator. He was, in, in fact, the big draw at, at uh, Gettysburg. Uh, Lincoln was kind of invited to show up and say a few words. Um, they were both former. Whigs. So in many ways, this was kind of the old Whig party, the party of, of kind of business and moderation alive again. Um, Bell was a slaveholder, um, but not an expansionist. He was one of the handful of Southern politicians to vote against the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which allowed for the possibility of slavery expanding into the Midwest in the guise of popular sovereignty. Um, he was unusual in that um, he was a slaveholder uh, and did have a plantation, but his main operation was a series of, of giant iron foundries along the Cumberland River. And so he hired and rented slaves uh, to work in his, his factory. So essentially, he was a slaveholding, non-expansionist, capitalist, industrialist Southerner. I mean, so the, the party kind of tells you a lot about how odd it was. Um, but they had a plan to win. Um, today, third parties typically are protest parties. They don't, they don't like the two main candidates. They, they want to make some kind of point. They don't expect to win. Um, the Constitutional Union Party, they met in their convention in Baltimore, did in fact have what they thought was a pretty good plan to win. By the time they meet in their convention, the Democrats have already met once and failed to nominate a candidate and are in the process of, of blowing apart. It's clear there's going to be probably at least four major candidates and a minor protest candidate, Garrett Smith, get back to him in a second, uh, who might cause some trouble up in New York. And so quite possibly they think 
no one's going to get that magic 50.1% where it matters, electoral college, and the only thing will go to the House where the party that stands for union, moderation, some kind of you know, sort of center of, of the aisle might actually have a chance. Um, you know, getting votes today, um, anyone can do that. Ross Perot back in 1992 got 18% of the popular vote. That's easy. Winning a state electoral college, how many electoral votes did Ross Perot get? Zero. This party, by comparison, carried three states, um, and they came in third, electoral college, and of course, um, so they, they really had a pretty good plan to win. The second party to get a candidate <coughs> up and running was the fairly new party, the Republican Party, only six years old in 1860. Um, they met in Chicago in this giant fire trap called the Wigwam, uh, made simply for this, this uh, convention. It was called the Wigwam because it's where the party chiefs would meet, you know, 1860 humor. Um, it's a giant pine building, about 160 feet deep, 100 feet this way, um, dried pine boughs and gas jets on the inside, just kind of one giant fire trap with two little small doors. I mean, it's a good thing. I think the dock open flames, and, I mean, everybody would have died. So they built it just for the convention to meet. Everybody understood the nominee was going to be William Henry Seward of New York. He was the front runner. He was Mr. Republican. He'd been in state or national office for 30 years in New York. First, he'd been a state assemblyman. He had been governor. He had been senator. He had been a kind of unofficial advisor to President Zachary Taylor. He was, in many ways, kind of Mr. Republican. But his fiery rhetoric uh, gave people the impression that he was, in fact, more radical than he was. He sounded very radical. Um, in practice, actually, he was a fairly moderate guy. He was anti-slavery, but he was no abolitionist. And of course, most Republicans were not abolitionists. So my students have a hard time understanding this. But in the 19th century, to be anti-slavery generically means you are opposed to slavery, and you'd like it to go away at some point down the road. And maybe you're a, you know, a, a gradualist, maybe you're a colonizationist, and you want to send blacks to Liberia. To embrace that radical term abolitionist means you want slavery ended yesterday. So Seward is anti-slavery, but he's not an abolitionist. Most Republicans, therefore, <clears throat> join the party to keep slavery out of the West. They want to overturn Kansas, Nebraska. They want to keep slavery out of New Mexico territory, Utah territory, and of course, New Mexico territory, including what is now Arizona. Um, they want to cut slavery off. They want to marginalize it. Um, they're capitalists. They're Republicans, and so therefore, they figure if slavery can't expand into Mexico, Cuba, more of Mexico, um, 20, 30 years down the road, it'll kind of die of its own side, you know, kind of clumsy inefficiency. Um, and the part a lot of people have a hard time understanding today is the party had many racist elements in the party. And I think that's what my students, especially in New York, have a hard time understanding. In the modern context, if you are Martin Luther King, and you are for something, you know, you're for integration, you're for social equality, you're also against something, you're, you're against segregation. The Republicans, in many ways, simply are against something. They are against slavery, they are against slavery expanding into the territories. Uh, they do not go out of their way to talk about black civil rights. Lincoln makes this very clear when he's debating Stephen Douglas in 1858, when he says, I, you know, I, I'm not supportive of blacks sitting on juries, blacks being citizens blacks voting. Lincoln does shift on that later on. But it's a party, basically, that is hostile to slavery and, quite often, hostile to blacks. Thanks to our curious electoral college system, uh, then or now, elections are not about getting the most votes. They're about piecing together the complicated electoral map. Uh, there were 303 votes in 1860, 152 needed to win. And I should have probably bought a, a map uh, of the electoral count in 1856. Uh, Republicans, brand new party, only two years old then, did really well in New England. Uh, they carried New York State. Uh, they did very badly in the Midwest. Uh, they got killed in New Jersey. They lost Pennsylvania. Um, what they needed, therefore, was not another New Yorker. New York was in the bag. Uh, their nominee in 56, John C. Fremont, had never been anywhere near New York. And he carried New York. 
What they needed was somebody who could carry Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Pennsylvania, maybe New Jersey, and that wasn't going to be Seward. So on the third ballot, uh, they chose this guy here on the left, the still clean-shaven, uh, one-term congressman from the 1840s, the virtually unknown Abraham Lincoln, frontier attorney. Uh, and because Lincoln was a former Whig from the West, they needed balance in terms of ideology and geography, so they chose Hannibal Hamlin. On the right, Hannibal Hamlin was a former Democrat. Uh, he was from Maine, so this kind of covered all the bases in terms of geography and ideology. Um, here is their platform. Um, again, it's a new party. They are for free speech because, of course, free speech had been stifled in the nation's capital. They are free homes. Uh, Lincoln, of course, signs the Homestead Act, 1862. Free territories, keeping slavery out of the territories. And because Lincoln is a former Whig, they're also for a high tariff. And so they don't really kind of explain why farmers who go west will not want a high tariff, but first things first. And the first thing is simply to keep slavery out of the territories. The third and fourth tickets in the field were both Democrats. The Democrats actually had met first. By tradition, Democrats typically met first in the 19th century. Uh, they met in the worst possible spot. They met in Charleston, South Carolina, and they simply could not agree on a candidate. Uh, genteel ladies came to the, uh, the convention's galleries. Every time Stephen Douglas's name was mentioned, they would boo and hiss. It was just not a, not a happy place. Um, and they finally simply could not. Uh, agree upon a candidate. Uh, the clear front runner was Stephen Douglas. Douglas, of course, was an old rival of Lincoln's. They'd known one another since 1834. Uh, Douglas even briefly had courted Mary Todd until she realized that, that he was just a flirt and had no interest at that point in marriage. <clears throat> he got a handful of votes at the Democratic nomination, uh, Democratic convention, excuse me, in 1852. Um, he almost got the nomination in 56, Buchanan instead got it, um, and had Douglas gotten the nomination in 56, he would have been the president and would have been riding in 64 re-election and not for the first time. He was, of course, the champion of popular sovereignty, uh, the kind of small d democratic idea of allowing uh, the settlers in the territories to decide when they applied for statehood, if they wished to be a free state or a slave state. Um, because he had overturned the 34-year-old uh, agreement, uh, the Missouri Compromise, um, in 1854, he expected the White South uh, to back him and support him. But to save his hide at home, he'd come out against the pro-slavery Lecompton Constitution because, of course, he was running against that Lincoln guy for the Senate in 58, and so had to come out against the pro-slavery Constitution for Kansas that, that uh, the whites in the South wanted. Um, and of all strange things, um, he made money on slavery. Um, Douglas was now on his second wife. This is not Douglas. I'll get to back to this in a second. Um, Douglas's first wife was from North Carolina, and um, she had inherited a plantation in Mississippi. As an Illinois politician and at that point judge, Douglas felt he could not accept uh, the plantation, but he accepted 20% every year. Um, so when Douglas runs for the presidency, he actually is making money on slavery in the South. But again, he had opposed Lecompton. Uh, the Lower South was determined to get what was known as the Alabama Platform. The Alabama Platform, and again, this is a time when platforms matter, uh, was a hard and fast guarantee of federal protection for slave property in the territories. A reminder, as Douglas liked to point out, um, that the planter class, when they talked about states' rights and small government, could be very flexible on that point. What uh, the White South wanted was the possible nomination of the very popular senator from Mississippi, Jefferson Davis, uh, the then sitting Vice President John C. Breckinridge, and the Virginia delegates were united behind this man, uh, Virginia Senator Robert M.T. Hunter uh, from Essex County, a longtime senator. He'd been on the Finance Committee. Um, he, of course, would become the second of three Confederate Secretaries of State, but this is the guy that Virginia delegates wanted and not, uh, and not Douglas. Complicating matters um, were the Democrat Party rules, which they had going back to the days of Jackson. And they had this rule all the way until 1932. To get the nomination, you needed to have not 50.1% of the votes at the convention, um, but two-thirds. And the way delegates were chosen was by, and this makes no sense at all, was by uh, uh, state population. 
So Massachusetts, in which the Democrats never ever once carried uh, before the Civil War, had more delegates at the Charleston Convention than did Alabama because they had more people than Alabama. So Stephen Douglas arrives, here he is, um, at the convention in Charleston or his people, people in those days didn't go to conventions themselves, and he had about 60% of the delegates behind him, but he couldn't break that magic two-thirds. This, by the way, almost cost Franklin Roosevelt the nomination in 1932. So they meet, they can't decide, the party breaks up, they meet again after the uh, Constitutional Union Party and the Republicans in third and fourth conventions. Northern Democrats met in Baltimore. Southern Democrats met here in Richmond. Northern Democrats chose this guy, Stephen Douglas, um, his running mate Herschel Johnson of Georgia. Uh, Johnson knew they were going to lose. He tried to beg off. He kept insisting that his feet hurt and he didn't want to run and, and they just put him on the ticket. Anyway, he wouldn't campaign. Southern Democrats <coughs> chose this man, John C. Breckinridge. Uh, he was then the vice president. Uh, he was from Kentucky. His running mate was Joseph Lane uh, from Oregon, but of course nobody actually was from Oregon in those days except for Native Americans. Um, Lane had been born in, in North Carolina and raised in Kentucky, so this was the reliably pro-slavery Southern Democratic ticket. Uh, it endorsed um, a Dred Scott decision, it endorsed Alabama Plank for the territories, uh, it called for the acquisition of Spanish Cuba, of course, as slave soil. Um, and of course, the odd thing is that Breckenridge, for the last several decades, had lived in a hotel in the nation's capital, no longer owned slaves or plantations in Kentucky. So again, the one guy the White South really hates, almost as much as they hate Lincoln, is Stephen Douglas, and he's the one making money on slavery, and Breckenridge isn't. But again, this is an election about positions and not about personal problems. The fifth candidate to be nominated uh, was a minor party candidate, a protest candidate, but not unimportant. This was the hardcore abolitionist party known as the Liberty Party. It existed since about 1840, and since 1848, this man on the left with his wonderful beard, Garrett Smith, had been their standard bearer. Um, <clears throat> they, of course, never intended to win, uh, like uh, all kind of classic third parties. They exist simply to advance their cause, to kind of get you know, information out there about their cause, and as a place for voters who were disaffected uh, to go and vote. Um, Garrett Smith was one of the richest men in the 19th century. His family owned about half of upstate New York, uh, so he financed all kinds of reform ventures, temperance ventures, anti-slavery ventures. Um, he was a feminist. Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh, was his first cousin. Um, but again, he didn't intend to win. He intended to kind of make a point. And bear in mind, of course, a lot of hardcore abolitionists didn't even vote. Out there in Boston, William Lloyd Garrison wouldn't vote because the Constitution mentioned slavery, not using that term, using cute euphemisms like persons held in labor, three times. Uh, Garrison, therefore, denounced the Constitution as a pact with Satan. He would burn it at Fourth of July rallies. Um, so for um, anti-slavery voters, um, you know, Garrett Smith is going to be an issue, and here's why. He's really the Ralph Nader of 1860, um, because <clears throat> Douglas's people, uh, Stephen Douglas's people, are running in New York a fusion electoral ticket in which people vote not for Breckinridge or Douglas or Bell, but for this fusion ticket. And then the fusion ticket beats the Republicans. They're going to divide up the electoral vote. So Douglas will get 15 votes, and New York is the big one, 33 electoral votes. They had more than, than any other state in 1860. So um, if the Republicans can't carry New York and don't capture these 33 electoral votes, Bell may get his way. You know, it, it may go into the House, um, and they probably will choose you know, somebody who's not a Republican because that party, of course, is perceived as being kind of the radical party. So. New York voters who are anti-slavery have to decide, not unlike Florida Nader voters in 2000. You know, do they want to throw their vote away? And of course, for anti-slavery voters in New York State, you know, the worst case scenario is uh, they'll probably get someone like Breckenridge. I mean, the best case scenario is they could get Bell or Douglas or Breckenridge. So they might throw their vote away and end up electing essentially the hardcore pro-slavery candidate. Here's the man on the right, the alpha male 
of the anti-slavery movement, runaway Maryland slave, Frederick Douglass. Um, Douglass gave a speech in Geneva, New York, and he said, I am a good abolition man. He said, I am voting for my old friend Garrett Smith. Long dramatic pause. And he said, but if any of you feel the need to vote Republican, I understand that. And that, of course, was the green light. Um, even Henry Stanton, Elizabeth Cady's husband, campaigned for Lincoln and the Republicans all around New York. Um, William Lloyd Garrison in Massachusetts pretty much did everything but endorse Lincoln. Uh, Garrison never liked Garrett Smith anyway, thought he was kind of a silly old fool. Um, here's the image I wanted for the, oh, pardon me, this is um, um, a ticket. Um, in the 19th century, there are no ballots in a modern sense. You don't go into a little booth and, and pull a curtain behind you. Um, you have to get a ticket or a ballot, and they, they look pretty much like, like a kind of a, a large bookmark. Um, and this is why people always say, you know, Lincoln wasn't on the ballot in the South. Well, yes and no. Um, you had to get a party functionary to give you um, a ticket, a ballot. And there's no private voting. So when Lincoln votes in Springfield on election day, he goes down to the county courthouse, and there are Republican functionaries handing out tickets and Democratic functionaries handing out tickets. And they have either a box or a couple of giant fishbowls. Um, and in front of all of your friends and the county judge, you, you drop your ballot into the fishbowl you want. So here on the left, uh, there actually was a Virginia ticket. Uh, but compared to the one on the right, um, the one on the right, because of course the ticket has the, the top of the ticket, but also who's running for governor, senator, mayor, dog catcher, and at the bottom, then, then the electors. So in Virginia, <clears throat> there's no one who's a Republican running for governor, senator. There simply are a handful of electors. Lincoln got 1.1% of the popular vote in Virginia, uh, most of it in, of course, what is now West Virginia. Here's the image I wanted for the cover. Um, no such luck. Um, authors always lose these fights over book titles. They, they change the subtitle of my book. Lincoln's name wasn't even in the subtitle. Um, I showed this to my daughters, and they said, you can't do this. It's really awful. I said, well, that's kind of the whole point about the election. Um, so I showed it to my publisher, and they said, well, maybe something a bit more representational, which is why the capital, unfinished, is the cover of the book. Um, here, of course, in the middle is, is this kind of horrible imp who's supposed to be Dred Scott. Um, on the right is Lincoln, and of course, look what he's doing. He's dancing with a woman of color. This is the big pitch the Democrats make north and south, um, especially in the south. How do you get uh, middle-class family farmers, and of course, bear in mind, 75% on average of southern whites don't own slaves. How do you get them on the bandwagon to support an actively pro-slavery candidate like, like John C. Breckinridge. And the answer is, if Lincoln is elected, he's going to free the slaves, and they're all going to come south and date your daughters. And they don't use the word date. Um, and disappears over and over and over again in speeches, in mainstream newspapers, in the Richmond Inquirer. Uh, so this is the big pitch, that, that, that this is the miscegenation party. Uh, bottom right, uh, nobody gets this. This is John Bell. Uh, as a young congressman, Bell was the co-author of the Indian Removal Act way back in 1830, so here he is dancing with an Indian. Um, this is my New York over here on the left. Uh, here's Stephen Douglas dancing with a drunken Irishman. Um, um, and again, it's, you know, <laughs> it's ghastly, but, but uh, Irish Americans were the most reliably democratic voting bloc. And of course, again, easy to... Um, See why they're tenaciously holding on to the lowest rung of the economic ladder. They're the ones who build and, and die uh, in constructing the Erie Canal. And the last thing they need is four million black Americans being free and coming north and competing with them for the same um, really awful jobs. I, I was telling Nelson before, I'm, I'm actually going to be teaching next year in Dublin. Um, and this will be interesting to talk about. I'm teaching my Civil War class to the Irish. And, and uh, that'll be talking about Irish Americans and the draft rights in New York will be an interesting moment, probably. <laughs> and then on the left is Breckenridge dancing with the satanic Judas goat, um, who has Andrew Jackson's face on it. So with the exception of Garrett Smith, these are the main candidates. Um, and it is a ghastly racist image. Uh, but this is the way Americans thought about the election. And this, of course, appeared in Harper's Magazine. Harper's was the, the Newsweek 
of the time. So this was not some some you know kind of minor newspaper. This was, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, again you know kind of a major uh, American journal. So here's the election. Uh, Lincoln won, but he got 39.8 percent of the popular vote. Still a record low. Indicated the 60.2 percent of Americans voted against Lincoln and regarded him as too radical to be president. Even a majority of ministers in Springfield voted against Lincoln because they thought he was too agnostic to be president. But Lincoln got 180 electoral votes. Their strategy worked. He carries all the states that Fremont carried in 56. He carried the states they needed to win that they lost in 56, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Illinois, Ohio. Uh, they picked up California. Of course, California's only four votes in those days uh, because the Democrats were split. Uh, Breckinridge and Douglas's vote in California exceeded Lincoln's, but, but Lincoln, again, you know, carried the states he needed to win and got you know, well more than he needed in the Electoral College. He carried every free state except for New Jersey, uh, which he split with, with the, the Douglas fusion ticket. Poor Douglas, the man everybody understood, would one day sit in the Oval Office, came in second in the popular vote, but ask Al Gore, that doesn't matter. He came in fourth in the electoral vote behind Breckinridge and behind Bell. Uh, Bell carried uh, the border, Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, and the Lower South, uh, of course, is Breckinridge country. That gets me to the third point. Uh, why does all this sound familiar? First, the centrality of race. Um, and as the hideous cartoon I just showed you indicates, this was not simply an election about slavery in the West. It was an election about what kind of country this was going to be. Um, I, I shouldn't tell you this because I hope you'll buy the book. Um, the, the book includes the N-word more than does Huck Finn. Um, Northern Democrats especially simply could not use the word Negro or black or African American. Um, Stephen Douglas uh, you know, simply could not use any word aside from the N-word uh, to refer to black Americans. After one especially offensive speech, William Seward took him aside and said, Douglas, no man who expels Negro with two Gs is ever going to be elected president. Um, Douglas, of course, dies. Um, at the age of 48 in the summer of 1861. And usually when a, a politician dies, the press finds something nice to say, and even people who didn't like the person find something kind to say about the deceased candidate. When he hears that Stephen Douglas is dead, Frederick Douglas says, good, I'm glad he's dead. He said, no man did more to set back the Negro than Stephen Douglas, which is certainly not true, but, but it's easy to see why Frederick didn't like him. During the campaign, and you probably can't see this that well, so I'll explain it, um, the rumor appeared that Hannibal Hamlin was mixed race. Um, Hamlin was a swarthy guy, but he was not mixed race. Maine was less than 1% black. Um, but this again appeared all throughout the Southern press, um, that, that this was a studied insult on the part of the Republicans to put a man who was you know, half black within a heartbeat of the presidency um, here is a letter right after Election Day, um, South Carolina humor. Um, they're writing to Lincoln. Uh, Dear sir, you we understand you have a very likely mulatto boy you wish to dispose of known as Hannibal Hamlin. So they're offering to buy his running mate and the vice president. Um, let me be, these are the birthers of 1860 and 1861. They know full well Hamlin is not half black, but they're determined to believe it. <clears throat> and for those of us who would like to believe we live in a post-racial society, and who among us would not like to think so, here's an interesting bit of data. In the 11 states that became the Confederacy, uh, the McCain-Palin ticket won a larger share of white male votes than it did nationwide. On average, in 2008, people who look like me, white guys, 55% of us voted for McCain and Palin. A reminder that if the same demographic that could vote in 1860 was voting today, we would have a President John McCain. Um, in New England, um, blacks could vote. In New York, where I live now, there was a property qualification imposed on blacks 
So Frederick Douglass could vote, but a black barber in Syracuse could not. And to remind us, Republicans were not abolitionists. The same New Yorkers who went to the polls and voted for Abraham Lincoln voted down a state referendum removing the property qualification that was imposed on blacks that was not imposed on whites. But from a low of 56% in Florida to a high of 88% in Mississippi, McCain ran well above the average in what was the old Lower South states. And where Lincoln did really well, Lincoln carried every single county in New England. McCain did very badly. McCain got only 31% of white males voting in Vermont. Lincoln got 75% of the vote in Vermont. Are there a lot of reasons why Americans North, South, East, West voted for or against Barack Obama, for or against John McCain? Absolutely. 88% of the white men in Alabama means something. <clears throat> the other obvious similarity between 1860 and 2008 is the fate of one of the front runners. Again, everybody understood there'd be two candidates, Stephen Douglas and this guy in the middle. William Henry Seward of New York. Seward could have had the nomination if he wanted in 56, but the party was brand new. And of course, you know, running a candidate, you don't need just a candidate, you need party infrastructure, people to hand out tickets at elections, mayors, governors, dog catchers, and they're simply not ready yet. So Seward's people hold it back for 60, understanding it's gonna be his time. So here is a poster in early 1860, and everybody knows this is the guy right in the middle. Down here on the left is this person that, that is so unknown, people often call him Abram Lincoln. Um, there's a far right bottom, Newt Gingrich. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's, actually, it's actually Cassius Clay of Kentucky, Henry Clay's cousin. And if you're my age, you can recall when, when there was a boxer um, named Cassius Clay. But, but uh, it does look like him, doesn't it? Um, but here are all the candidates, and the one in the middle, everybody knows is going to be the guy. And of course, we now know, uh, thanks to stories that have come out after the election of 2008, uh, that even before the Iowa caucus, Hillary Clinton was thinking about who her running mate would be and kind of planning her cabinet. Um, here, too, the surprise victor at the convention was a tall, lanky Illinois attorney. And of course, neither Obama nor Lincoln were born in Illinois. Um, and Lincoln and his advisor, David Davis, had the smart strategy. Um, today, conventions are infomercials. They're, they're kind of terribly dull. In the 19th century, they actually make decisions. And usually, when um, a state's uh, election commission goes, uh, they spend their first vote kind of thanking the, the local uh, favorite son uh, for past uh, performance simply by giving that person the vote, knowing full well they're not going to be the nominee. So on the first uh, ballot, uh, Chase gets the Ohio vote. Uh, Simon Cameron gets the Pennsylvania vote, Lincoln gets the Illinois vote, but late all that night, the first, uh, the first night of the convention, David Davis goes around and convinces everybody, especially those who have doubts about Seward's electability, that yeah, go ahead and vote for your guy first, but on the third ballot, if your guy's not gonna make it, you know, think about our guy, Lincoln. And it turns out to be the right strategy. I was writing this chapter, the cha it's chapter four, where, where Lincoln gets the nomination, about the same time in 2008, uh, when Senator Clinton was giving up the election against um, Barack Obama giving up the, the campaign. And I was reading Seward's correspondence and I felt like I was reading Senator Clinton's mail. People wrote to him and said, who is this guy, Abram Lincoln? Uh, one person said, I shed bitter tears when I heard you did not get the nomination. Another person said, I'm not gonna lift a finger, let those who chose Lincoln elect him. And of course, after getting over his, his funk, what did Seward do? He came around, he endorsed Lincoln, he campaigned for Lincoln, and of course was rewarded with the top spot in the State Department, becoming one of two people to serve all eight years in the State Department, James Madison is the other. Um, and of course the same thing goes for Senator Clinton. Um, <clears throat> here again, Seward knows he's gonna be the nominee. So in his house in Auburn, New York, he has his friends over. Um, if you've been to his house, he's got a beautiful garden, he's sitting out by his garden. Uh, people love cannons in the 19th century, at least before the war. Um, and so they brought a cannon over from the courthouse. They're gonna blow it off as soon as the news arrives in, in Auburn that, that uh, Seward has the nomination. Seward had gotten a telegram the night before saying, your nomination tomorrow for sure. 
So he's sitting out there with all his friends. Here comes somebody running, you know, down to the telegraph office. Lincoln nominated third ballot. You owe $1.50. <laughs> and he sits there, and he quietly stares at the telegram for about five minutes. And, and finally said, well, Lincoln's a good man. He'll be a good president. And, and the friends kind of get up and sort of tiptoe away. And in the distance, people take the cannon away from the courthouse square. And he just sat there all afternoon, staring at the telegram. I assume somebody paid. Um, the one leading difference between the candidates um, were their wives. Francis Seward despised politics. Um, again, if you go to upstate New York today and you go to the Seward house, that's her dad's money. That's not his money. That, that's her money. Um, and again, he's a politician, which means he's got to cut corners. He's got to make deals. Um, he loved to drink brandy and champagne um, at the same time, incidentally. Um, big smoker, and, whereas Francis is a temperance woman. Um, he's anti-slavery. She's an abolitionist. And so she doesn't like the kind of deals that he has to make to kind of survive in politics. So she does come down uh, briefly when he's in the Senate uh, to the nation's capital and brings one of her elegant Persian rugs with her. And um, John J. Crittenden is over for dinner, and he's chewing, and he just spits tobacco on her rug. And she rolls it up and puts it in the carriage and goes back to upstate New York, and she never comes back. <laughs> and the day that, and that's somewhat kind of odd in a strange marriage, they would write memos to each other. They're in the same house. Um, so, so the day he gets this, you know, is the worst day of his life. And she wrote him a memo, and what she said, it's the best day of my life. She said, for 30 years, he's elected to the, the assembly in 1830, for 30 years, you've been gone. And she said, no one could do more than you've done, and it's time for you to stay home. And then, of course, what happens, he's tapped for the State Department, and for the eight years, he's in the nation's capital, buying Alaska, you know, running the, helping run the government, not once does she come to visit. He has to go back and see her if he wants to see her. By comparison, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln um, is a real asset in 1860. History hasn't been kind to Mary Todd. Uh, Lincoln's two male secretaries just couldn't stand her. They thought she was mean to, to the old man who they loved. Um, and of course, you know, after, of course she loses two children, her husband is shot, you know, right in front of her, and so probably a lot of you know she has mental problems later in life and is briefly institutionalized. So, I mean, you know, history kind of looks back at her as this sort of difficult, kind of daft woman. In 1860, she is a real asset. Um, he's the country rube. She's the one who's gone to the right finishing schools. Um, and of course, the candidates don't campaign. People campaign, you know, for them, but the press goes to see them. So the press all goes to Springfield to see Lincoln, and they're not impressed. His clothes don't fit, you know, his jackets are always like this. He shouts, howdy, when he sees people. And they put up their hand, he shakes their hand, and there's two kind of giant bits of his, his hands. Mary Todd is handing out the finger sandwiches and, and the cookies and the tea on her silver trays, and she's chatting about politics and policy, and she's refined, and so her they like. So she is a real asset, and she was deeply ambitious for her Abraham. She was raised in a good Whig household. Uh, she actually knew as a young woman, Henry Clay, who's Lincoln's ideal statesman. And, and so she's really taken by politics and defines herself by her Abraham and, and embraces the term Mrs. Lincoln. She's not Mary Todd, she's Mrs. Lincoln. And so she can't wait to go to the nation's capital and buy all kinds of nice things. But, but the press really likes her in 1860. Here, finally, is the key difference between this election and every other election in American history, obviously apart from the fact that this one leads to a civil war. And in many ways, this is really what the book is about. Um, parties always run to win. Um, but in 1860, a handful of very powerful Democrats actively want their party to lose. I mean, even today, when candidates know they're about to be clobbered, they just, they just still have this fantasy that somehow they're going to win. While I was writing the book, I had the amazing great fortune of having dinner one night with Senator George McGovern, who of course wrote a slim book about Lincoln. And finally, after several glasses of wine, I had the courage and I said, well, um, Senator, when did you know you were gonna just get crushed in, in the election? And he said, <laughs> um, 
He said, you know, my, my aides about a month out knew that it was bad. He said, but you know, until about a week before, I was just kind of holding on to the hope that something was going to turn and was going to change. And, and so, I mean, candidates always have this, this kind of hope that they're going to win. But here are two very powerful people in 1860 who actively worked to make their Democratic Party lose. William Lowndes Yancey, former Alabama congressman here on the left, and Robert Barnwell Rett Sr. on the right, also former congressman, um, owned and published the most incendiary pro-slavery paper in America, Charleston's Mercury. Um, Yancey was known as the Prince of the Fire Eaters. Fire Eaters, of course, was, was you know, hardcore pro-slavery radical, and he embraced the term Prince of the Fire Eaters. These two men had decided as early as 1850, uh, when California entered the Union as part of the Compromise, as a free state, um, that the slave South was simply in danger uh, by being part of the United States. And they actively worked to get it out um, and create what Yancey called a slaveholding republic. Um, and this is what Douglas failed to understand until too late. These guys wanted to use the rather convoluted Democratic Party machinery to break up the party. Uh, both of them do vote for Breckinridge, but they want a Republican to win. Um, Yancey says early on that, that, you know, I will support Breckinridge. He said a Breckinridge election would be the worst thing for the country because it will lull the slaveholding South into four more years of thinking they're safe in the Union while the North becomes more populous, more industrial, more powerful. Um, they want to deny Douglas the nomination, not to give it to Hunter or Breckinridge or Jeff Davis. Um, they want to break the party up and elect William Henry Seward. And again, no one sees Lincoln coming to give them an excuse to leave. So I mean, that's really what makes this election different. And the two people who do campaign are Douglas and Yancey. Douglas campaigns in the South when he realizes he's going to lose. It's kind of the one really principled moment in Douglas's life, not typically filled with a lot of ideology and principle. Um, because again, Lincoln is not going to get many votes in the South. And in the Lower South, he gets zero votes. Douglas campaigns in the South to alert slaveholders to the fact that this guy they don't like is going to win, and that the one thing the unified North agrees on is that whoever gets the most votes on March 4 will be sworn in. So he's alerting the South to the fact that if secession happens, there is going to be a fight, and that Northern Democrats will not fight for anti-slavery, but they'll fight for union. So Election Day finds Douglas way down in the South. Yancey does the opposite. Yancey campaigns in the North. He's getting the North ready for the fact that his Alabama is going to leave. He campaigns in Manhattan. He campaigns in Boston Spaniel Hall. He campaigns in my Syracuse. And he campaigns even in Frederick Douglass's Rochester. And he said, you know, let us go in peace. And we will not let the Negro come here and abuse your daughters. And that's about 50 minutes, so why don't I stop there and take <laughs> any questions you might have. And again, my, my apologies for my terrible voice. Graham, Graham, right behind you. Uh, over here. Uh, we enjoyed the talk. Uh, was the Cooper's Union speech of Lincoln a factor in all of this business? And two, if it were, was the would you liken it to uh, President Obama or candidate Obama's speech on race when his uh, preacher was a uh, hot topic? Well, I, I would, yes, uh, yes and no. I, I would say, first in terms of Lincoln and Cooper Union, it makes him famous. And of course, um, you know, while, while people in the East typically don't know much about Lincoln and assume that Seward is the guy, um, Lincoln is very, very ambitious. Uh, his law uh, attorney once described his ambition as a little engine that knew no rest. So he wants to be president very, very badly or be senator. And, and of course, you know, losing to Douglas in 58, he's already planning to run again six years down the road. Um, I went back to this image because the person who's invited to come speak at the Cooper Union uh, is Simon Chase of Ohio, and Chase takes a pass. 
Um, so for Lincoln, then they're like, well, okay, if the, if the big name isn't going to come, you know, if Chase isn't going to come, Phil, I just, I just saw Phil Schwartz. Um, um, it was dark before. Um, uh, they invite uh, Lincoln instead, and so the speech really makes him because, of course, it gets you know a lot of press, especially in New York, which which really counts. And it's an amazing speech. I mean, the descriptions of the speech uh, when he's done talking, people are throwing hats in the air, and especially young party activists. And of course, then or now, that's really what you need is not just votes, but people who will go door to door and stuff envelopes and and you know annoy voters and ring your doorbell. It's, it's the young men who go to hear Lincoln and are just really taken with the guy. So Cooper Union really makes him famous in places. Then he also goes and speaks in Boston. His son's at Harvard, so he uses that chance to kind of go and, and see his son and do a lot of speaking uh, gigs at the time. So it really makes him famous. I would say not uh, Obama's response about the black minister, but, but the, the speech that Obama makes to the Democrats in 2004. No one had heard of who the guy was before, and of course he gives the speech that automatically gave him kind of a real leg up for 2008. So I mean, the, the, going to New York uh, was a real moment in Lincoln's life and he knew it. Uh, the first thing he did when he got there uh, was to buy a brand new suit, one that actually fit for a change. He says this is gonna be like a, you know, a really interesting moment. He gets his photograph taken, this is a true story. You know, Lincoln, his face had character, let's put it that way. Um, not a, a truly handsome man. So he has his, his photograph taken on the day of the Cooper Union address. Um, in part, of course, he's very tall, and they want to indicate that by getting it in the photograph. But the photographer keeps moving the camera back and back and back, trying to get all of it in, and frankly, trying to kind of fuzz some of his features a little bit, because the photographer doesn't think he's, he's a truly handsome guy. But Lincoln understands this is going to be a really big moment, and, and he makes the most of it. Uh, could you talk about James Buchanan, and did he seek the nomination, or was he so unpopular that, that he wasn't going to be nominated by his party? He was so unpopular, he would, he would, there was not a chance in the world he would have gotten the nomination. Um, Buchanan also, of course, is one of our older uh, presidents, and, and we tend to think of Lincoln uh, as older because he, you know, he, he looked older by the end of the war. I mean, the war made him old, but he's actually one of our younger um, presidents, you know, born only in 1809. Um, so, so Americans at the time really noticed the, the kind of difference between the tired, beaten down by life James Buchanan and, and, and the tall, you know, lanky, uh, very healthy at that point, Abraham Lincoln. I will say this about Buchanan. I mean, uh, Buchanan was regarded as probably the worst president in American history. Historians play this kind of odd parlor game usually at, at bars, at conferences, the five worst, the five best, the five smartest, the five dumbest. Um, and Buchanan typically is regarded as, as the worst but so many things that were going to happen really just could not be solved. I mean, he gets blamed for Dred Scott. He does interfere a bit with the court. Um, but the things that are going to happen, you know, probably are going to happen. And, and you know, historians get into the question of whether the Civil War was inevitable or could have been avoided. Um, but certainly the question of slavery in the territories just, just beat down a whole series of one-term presidents in the 1850s. And, and so... Um, nobody likes Buchanan, but almost nobody is convinced that there's things he could have done differently that would have been much better or resolved the crisis. So, yeah, that's how's that for. But yeah, not, not a chance. No one even mentions. They even, they even mention running Tyler again or running Pierce again, uh, but but never Buchanan. Um, why did um, Virginia go Constitutional Union in 1860 when the rest of the South? Uh, was Southern de Democrat? Um, well, a couple of really good reasons. I mean, one, of course, is that um, Virginia's a slave state, but, um, and numerically, of course, it has a very, very large number of slaves, but in terms of the percentage, um, you know, it's not, not very high, certainly not by comparison to South Carolina. Um, there is, in fact, a, a pretty neat correlation between the percentage of slaves in a state uh, and how rapidly they secede after Lincoln's elected. So South Carolina is 61% black. Um, meaning a typical South Carolinian, when the war begins, is a slave. Um, Virginia's about 31%, Maryland about 24%. Um, plus, they can see a map. Um, if the war comes, you know, where's the front gonna be? So, so I mean, that, that imposes a certain level of caution, you know, on any sane statesman. Um, so part of it is they, they simply don't have the kind of psychological investment in slavery that does Mississippi 55% black, South Carolina. Um, 
there are, in fact, Southerners, when the convention meets in Montgomery, I talk about this in the book, um, that are not opposed to, to Virginia actually staying with the United States because it becomes kind of Poland. It becomes this kind of buffer zone uh, that the North will have to invade through to get down to them. Um, and note, of course, what they write into their constitution. They ban the Atlantic slave trade in their constitution, the Confederacy. Um, but they allow for the purchase of slaves from the United States. So Virginia can still be, as far as they're concerned, a feeder um, of slaves. But, but they're not opposed to Virginia kind of being there as just this kind of big wall between the North and the South. So, I mean, it really is a middle state. They want to have some kind of resolution to the crisis absent picking up a gun. And once the fighting starts, then they've got to choose. What can you tell us uh, about the various illnesses uh, and, or depression or whatever that he was supposed to have had? And did anybody in 1860 suspect any of that? Um, no. Um, and of course, I, you're asking about Lincoln, I assume. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, well, no, the reason I ask is because, of course, Stephen Douglas drinks and smokes himself to death. He's 48, I think I mentioned when he dies. Um, and, and to go back to, to historians being, I think, somewhat unkind to Mary Todd Lincoln, um, I would want to be married to Abe. Um, he would go into these deep funks. He called it getting the hypo. Um, and, and wouldn't speak, you know, for, for days. I mean, he must have been just terrible to live with because he just goes into these kind of awful funks, probably manic depressive. I mean, today we would give him happy pills and, 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 uh, and a shrink. Um, certainly, certainly the, the war has cause in his generals, you know, to make him, he, he always said McClellan gave him the hypo. Uh, and it's easy to see why. So, so he, he's not quite as depressed you know, in 60, um, plus by the time the, the, his party meets, they pretty much figure they've got it in the bag because the Democrats have imploded. And, and uh, Lincoln is getting correspondence by August saying, you've got this one. And he writes back to several people and says, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, again, simply because the majority Democratic Party has, has broken apart. So he's actually a pretty happy guy in the fall of 60. So yeah, there's, no, there's no talk the way there would be today um, about, about depression or things like that in, in the press. Um, did the uh, West Virginia came into being in 63, I believe. Did the, the vote in this election, uh, was that instrumental? I know uh, Kentucky remained with the Union, and then, of course, uh, and was that, uh, how legitimate was that? That's a little bit off on the... Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's symptomatic of what, what Western Virginia was about to do. And, you know, of course, they'd, they'd been unhappy for years about the way the apportionment worked in the Virginia Assembly. Um, and so the fact that it's essentially young um, former Whigs in the Western districts, the non-slaveholding districts who are voting for Lincoln, who are brave enough to ask for a ticket or to hand a ticket out um, at, on voting day, is kind of a precursor for what's coming. So, um, I mean, they start to leave as soon as, as the fighting begins and Virginia secedes. You know, the Western counties start to secede from Virginia. So it finally does become accomplished formally in 63, but they're, they're starting to move in 61. So the votes that Lincoln gets in the western part of the state, he doesn't get any votes, you know, down here in Richmond, um, are it's simply an indication that, that the western part of the state is unhappy with the way things are, are going. But even then, it's only 1.1% of the state. And it's typically people who just, they're not crazy about Bell, they certainly can't go for Breckenridge, and they don't like Douglas either. Um, so to a certain extent, Lincoln wins because he's a former Whig and they're former Whigs. Okay, um, Nelson says one more question. How did money uh, play in this election? Garrett Smith, was, you said, was a, a wealthy. Uh, he owned a lot of New York real estate. Uh, but uh, where did the money and how did it compare to, to today? Um, certainly not like today. And of course, I mean, the, the things that, that really are expensive today, you know, commercials, things like that. I mean, there's, there's buttons at the time. There's all kinds of you know, things like that. But certainly nothing as pricey as today. Um, a lot of marches, young men form these groups called Wide Awakes. I've got an image in the book of the Wide Awakes who wear this kind of, almost kind of paramilitary gear for Lincoln and march all around the North. Um, but, but money does come into play, and, and David Davis, uh, Lincoln's campaign manager, Lincoln, of course, later on puts him on the court and becomes a, a justice, um, is a guy in charge of that. So Lincoln never has to deal with the money. So, so Davis is the money guy. People will write to him and say, uh, Bill is running hard in my district. Uh, we need some money to facilitate things, not, not bribes, but, but parties, banquets, fundraisers, things to kind of you know, get, get the, the, the name up, uh, pay for speakers, 
So, of course, Lincoln doesn't speak, uh, but Hannibal Hamlin speaks, and then people like um, Henry Stanton travel all over New York and speak for Lincoln, and they expect to get at least their expenses covered. So, so Davis is in charge of that. Um, and the money comes from then or now, uh, big business, the rising industrial elite. Again, Lincoln is a former Whig who's a high-tariff man, and, and so business elements are, you know, they're nervous about what they perceive to be the kind of, you know, anti-slavery element of the party, but they like his economic platform. So that's, yeah, those, there's some big donors in 60. Thank you ever so much. <laughs> <laughs>